Okay, well, we're going to start with something uh, totally different, thinking about incentives with regard to foreign and defense policy. So we've had incentives with a wide range of economic and other social policies, and now you'll have the pleasure of hearing my colleagues, uh, Christopher Preble, who is the Vice President for Foreign and Defense Policy Studies here at Cato, and our colleague Malu Innocent, to address questions of foreign military policy. Chris. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Tom, for uh, the introduction and for the invitation to speak. And thanks to all of you for being here this week. Uh, I also want to thank our conference staff who puts on all these events at Cato and, and uh, does a terrific job. And they've been working very hard this week. So thanks to them. Um, <clears throat> Over the next hour or so, um, first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to take that off. There we go. Uh, over the next hour or so, Malou uh, and I will try to paint a picture of where we as a nation are in terms of our foreign policy uh, and military spending and where we think we should be going. Um, and then uh, we will have uh, more than enough time, I think, for a lively Q&A. We're going to try and put some things on the table, perhaps some controversial things, and I expect uh, a good exchange. You know, whenever I talk about foreign policy, I've been doing this job now for uh, nine and a half years uh, here at Cato. Um, I like to start with at the beginning, uh, or at least the, the relevant beginning. During the long periods in the 19th and early 20th century, uh, the United States maintained a small standing army, mobilized additional persons to fight the few wars declared by Congress, and then sent most of the men home. They were all men then. Uh, when the war was won. This pattern was established during the earliest days of the Republic and was driven by the founders' ambivalent view of military power. And I think ambivalence is the right term. Uh, on the one hand, the founders realized that military power, their ability to prevail militarily against the British, was instrumental in securing their independence. On the other hand, of course, the presence of British troops in their midst was among the list of particulars that Thomas Jefferson cited in the Declaration of Independence for wanting to be free of the mother country in the first place. And the Constitution, which is what I'm going to talk about today, resolved this tension between the necessity for a military for self-defense and the fear that a large military would undermine the delicate balance between the citizens and the state. Uh, they did this by strictly limiting the likelihood that the new nation would become engaged in foreign wars. And the Constitution did this by uh, narrowly defining the purpose of the military, the common defense, and by limiting the federal government's ability to wage war. The Constitution constrained the one branch most prone to war, the executive, and imagined a state of affairs in which the new nation would have little standing military power. It's my contention that such limitations, similar limitations, not the same, but similar limitations, would serve us well in the 21st century. We do not need a hyperactive foreign policy in order to preserve US security. We are already extraordinarily secure. In fact, attempting to be the world's policeman is not just costly, but it may be counterproductive. It may actually undermine our security. And it's also inconsistent with basic ideas about the proper role of government. And as, as Tom has already alluded to, it creates a set of perverse incentives between the United States and American taxpayers and allies and other countries around the world uh, that are truly perverse, that truly do not advance global security. So my argument, and that of my colleagues that we've been making for many years, we should adopt a military posture for the United States that better aligns with our national interests and our political culture and we should strive for a more equitable distribution of responsibility among many nations for global security and not have it be the sole or primary responsibility for the United States. But before I go there, I do want to dwell for a few minutes on why the founders felt the way they did about military power and why they constructed the Constitution as they did. Consider, for example, these other provisions. Congress shall have the power to punish crime and declare war. 
uh, Congress shall raise, I, I'm, you all have this, so I, I'm just, I'm going through these quickly, but you can, you can find them. It's, it, trust me, it's in there. This is straight out of the text. Um, I'm not making this up. Um, uh, Congress shall raise and support armies, but maintain a Navy. That is a distinction that's important. And Congress shall have the power to call forth the militia. Now, these ideas were not so radical at the time. Most countries in the late 18th century chose to rely on a small professional military include, and then augmented that military. They had mercenaries for hire as well. And then they would augment that professional military with private citizens as conditions required. Early Americans believed that standing armies and endangerment of liberty went hand in hand. As Madison stated during the Constitutional Convention, a standing military force with an overgrown executive will not long be safe companions to liberty. The means of defense against foreign danger have been always the instruments of tyranny at home. Among the Romans, it was a standing maxim to excite a war whenever a revolt was apprehended. Throughout all Europe, the armies kept up under the pretext of defending have enslaved the people. Madison, he looked upon war, it was kind of a petri dish uh, for growing, for expanding state power at the expense of the individual. Of all enemies of public liberty, war is perhaps the most to be dreaded because it comprises and develops the germ of every other. No nation could preserve its freedom in the midst of continual warfare. And Madison was hardly alone. As Bruce Porter writes in War and the Rise in the State, the vast majority of America's landowning aristocracy had an almost congenital distrust of standing armies, which their ancestors had for generations identified with despotism. They glorified instead the yeoman militia, linked to the land and closely tied to local interests. Critical to avoiding the need for a standing army was the Constitution's provision that Congress, not the executive, would have the authority to declare war. Madison explained the rationale in a letter to Thomas Jefferson. The Constitution supposes what the history of all governments demonstrates, that the executive is the branch of power most interested in war and most prone to it. It, the Constitution, has accordingly, with studied care, vested the question of war in the legislature. Madison later saw this provision as perhaps the most important one of the entire document. In no part of the Constitution is more wisdom to be found than the clause which confides the question of war or peace to the legislature and not to the executive department. Um, and not to be forgotten, George Washington in his farewell address warned his countrymen to avoid the necessity of overgrown military establishments which are inauspicious to liberty but particularly hostile to Republican liberty. Now, whenever I give this presentation, and I have many times, I'll admit, um, people say these sentiments, th these are perhaps unnecessarily unwieldy. The line you often hear is we don't really need 535 secretaries of state. One is bad enough. Uh, perhaps it's even dangerous to believe in these kind of constraints. But as a matter of fact, if you look back at the history of this country, it was as much by, by circumstances, by design, that the, the foreign and military policy founded on, in Jefferson's immortal words from his first inaugural, peace, commerce, and honest friendship with all nations, entangling alliances with none. That vision survived and thrived in North America for a very long time. In fact, I find it all the more remarkable that the founders retained their skepticism of military power and deliberately constrained the power of the new federal government, given that the threats that were facing them then, in the 18th and early 19th century, were so much greater than the threats we are confronting today. If you doubt that, consider, in the time of the Constitutional Convention, you had the British Empire to the north in Canada, you had Spain lodged in France, you had uh, the French and British navies plying the seas, uh, impressing, uh, that is to mean enslaving unfortunate seamen who were uh, happened to get caught up in their net. And on top of all that, you had uh, uh, Native American tribes uh, constantly raiding the edges of the frontier. They were, of course, anxious to halt 
the encroachment of the Anglos on their land. And this was the state of affairs when this Constitution was drafted. And again, part of the rationale for the Constitution was that the Articles of Confederation weren't strong enough. And yet, we have a, uh, the military provisions of the Constitution were, I think, in retrospect, or certainly relative to where we are today, uh, quite limiting. And there are several reasons why Americans were rather uh, successful at staying out of wars for about the first 150 or so years of our history. Um, they had little need for a large military as the framers of the Constitution had hoped. And again, when Congress saw fit to declare war, which it did from time to time, it did so, it made the necessary provisions, raised the necessary numbers of men and material, and then sent the men home when the war was over. It was not simply ideology and a commitment to the letter and spirit of the Constitution that enabled the founders to do this. For one thing, the security situation did improve. Uh, in the span of about 20 years, in uh, the dawn of the, 20, the first 20 years of the 19th century, the United States had convinced three European powers to largely quit uh, the U.S. portion of North America. Of course, Jefferson bought off the French with the Louisiana Purchase. Americans prevailed over the British in the War of 1812. Some people dispute whether it was prevailing, but whatever. Um, <laughs> and, and, of course, the Spanish were, were uh, bought off. They ceded Florida in the Adams-Onis Treaty of 1819. And after that, uh, the European power, powers pretty much left us alone. They had lots of reasons for doing that. They were desperately, they were tired from the Napoleonic Wars. They were w worried that adventures abroad would distract them from their uh, troubles at home, uh, all good reasons. And the good fortune, really, for the United States was that the young nation developed during this peculiar period in human history had a few wise leaders uh, who had the sense to take advantage of this splendid isolation and build an enduring nation state. And of course, the greatest threat to the republic in terms of military uh, came not from foreign threats, but from the civil war that remains the costliest war in our history. Um, and as I said, they did occasionally engage in wars. Americans still clung to this philosophy espoused by the founders that free nations possess small professional militaries and strive to avoid foreign wars, even as they, as we, are happy to profit from foreign trade and otherwise to serve as an example to the world. And this pattern persisted even into the 20th century, even as the United States became involved in far larger wars in far distant lands. We see attitudes towards military power really changing after World War II. And a new model took root that endured even after the fall of the Berlin Wall in 89 and the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. In the early days of the Cold War, the United States enjoyed a modest peace dividend. Total military spending in real dollar terms fell about 28% uh, during the 1990s. Uh, but it would have been 28%, but it would have been reasonable, I think, to expect far deeper cuts in military spending, perhaps even to pre-Cold War levels. And the reason why this didn't is because it was presciently uh, told uh, by President Dwight David Eisenhower in his farewell address, the famous military-industrial complex speech. It was this, the military-industrial complex and new attitudes towards military power that had uh, that had really become ingrained in American culture in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, that is what kept military spending much higher than necessity dictated. Uh, equally important, the United States kept many of its overseas bases and retained and even expanded security commitments under alliances that were, after all, ostensibly created to uh, contain a now defunct Soviet empire. Uh, the reason why this occurred, I think, is, ob is quite obvious. As Eisenhower had predicted, the creation of a permanent, permanent armaments industry during the Cold War had created similarly permanent political constituencies that objected to cuts in military, or at least to cuts in the particular part of the military that happened to affect them directly. Whereas Americans had once armed for war and then returned to peaceful pursuits when the war was over, they now armed for the sake of arming. And every weapon system had its defender in Congress. Every community could come up with a dozen reasons for why their base should not be cut. And again, in, in tandem with that, policymakers here in Washington were no longer dependent 
upon active public support for military activism abroad. They no longer needed to raise an army, for example. They already had one. And in the 1990s, they looked around for places to use it. They also subtly changed the meaning of common defense as expressed in the Constitution. I want to step back for just a minute because during the Cold War, the common defense of the United States included also the defense of those other disunited states over there, far away. And I think in retrospect, that made sense. Uh, especially during the early days of the Cold War, Europe was broken and broke. Uh, Ford positioning U.S. troops in Europe and also in Asia to deter an attack by our common enemy, the Soviet Union, later Communist China, to deter an attack, uh, and then working with allies to defeat an attack if deterrence failed, I think that made sense, and I think it's broadly consistent with uh, the, the narrower definition of common defense. But it's my contention and that of my colleagues over the years that retaining this global posture and even expanding it, as we did during the 1990s, uh, was and is costly and ultimately counterproductive. Today, the US government is pledged to defend not merely the vital economic and political population centers of Western Europe and East Asia, but also a host of emerging countries and regions, including in Eastern Europe, Southeast Asia, and Southwest Asia, what we now know as the Persian Gulf or the Middle East. The object in nearly every case is to discourage countries from taking steps to defend themselves, in part because such steps might lead, it is said, to destabling arms races, and in part because some people fear the creation of independent centers of power that might someday uh, challenge US dominance and ultimately threaten US security. This is a mistake. Washington's foreign policies have dramatically expanded the US government's powers well beyond those enumerated in the Constitution. Simply put, the common defense referred to in this document refers not to the defense of the whole world, but rather to the peoples voluntarily bound to its unique social contract. Consider what this broader definition of common defense costs us. And bear with me for a few minutes because I'm going to show some graphs that try to put U.S. military spending in context. I've learned over the past few years that many people approach this discussion with some pretty basic misconceptions about the scale of U.S. military dominance, about the purpose of that military power. But just consider, for example, this slide. The reason I show this slide is twofold. One is to show that defense spending held in constant dollars, that's inflation-adjusted dollars, does rise and fall after it, it rises to fight wars and it falls after the wars are over. And we can see this in every single case, Korea, Vietnam, Cold War, and now, just now, we're starting to see that spending after the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan is starting to decline. The other reason why I show this chart above all others is because all those folks who have told you that military spending has already been cut, slashed, devastated, annihilated, whatever term they use, not true. Real inflation-adjusted dollars, there you have it. Second, a lot of people believe that the increase of the last 10 or 15 years is exclusively attributed to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Also not true. The, the green line shows the rise in the defense base budget, the Pentagon base budget. In other words, if we had held Pentagon spending constant for inflation, that's the blue line right below 400, okay? That additional spending in the base budget, leaving aside the cost of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, whatever you think of them, $960 billion in additional spending in the base budget over a 10-year period. Um, so I've shown you that we're spending more than we did during much of the Cold War. We're spending much more than any conceivable combination of rivals today. This is the other chart I like to show. Um, you know, because I, this, should, this chart, I think, is so important because whenever I talk about military spending and about defense and foreign policy and people say, but I want a strong defense. And my answer is, well, who doesn't want a strong defense? I want a strong defense. We could cut the US military budget in half, which I don't call, call for, but we could. We could cut it in half and still be spending twice as much as China spends on its military. 
And after all, I'm, I'm going to pick on the Allies a little bit today. It's not really their fault. It's our fault because we've created this dependency. But after all, we're not the only country in the world that shares common values about security and liberty and things like that and free trade and that, that kind of thing. And our allies, in spite of our coddling them, still have capabilities of their own. So we would not truly be going into this fight all by ourselves if there was such a fight. Um, so that's where we are today <clears throat> and how we got here. Where are we going? Um, the first thing to keep in mind is going to depend on Congress. And today is the, <laughs> today is the one year anniversary of the Budget Control Act. Uh, this was the, the deal. Yeah, isn't that funny? There, there are some people that, if you sent a card to members of Congress right now, they probably wouldn't be very happy about that. Because there's a lot of buyer's remorse right now in Congress. This, of course, is the deal they were trying to, to, to stop. A, uh, the White House wanted a debt ceiling increase. The Republicans wanted deficit reduction, et cetera, et cetera. They hammered together this deal. Supposed to have a stand up. This uh, super committee was supposed to find $1.2 uh, uh, trillion dollars in, in savings over 10 years through a combination of spending cuts or tax increases. And if they failed, then sequestration, that's under Budget Control Act, would impose $110 billion in cuts over a nine-year period, evenly divided between defense spending and non-defense discretionary spending, $55 billion in each pot. Keep those numbers in mind, because I want to show you a few more slides in a minute. The question, before I, before I get to that, it will also depend, where we're going will also depend on who the next president is. Because I think that Barack Obama is quite serious when he says uh, to Congress and the members of the administration, it happened just yesterday, um, they, would, they are content to let sequestration go through, uh, uh, but what they really want is for the Republicans to cave at the last minute on taxes. That's what they want. <laughs> And there are some Republicans who appear ready to do that. In fact, there are some who have already come out publicly and said they will do this. And Lindsey Graham, Kelly Ott, uh, uh, John McCain and others have said, yes, it's true. We need more revenues to make so that we can continue to fund uh, military at its current levels. On the other hand, Governor Romney has pledged to spend at least 4% of GDP on the base Pentagon budget. And that doesn't count whatever extra would have to, we would spend on the cost of the wars. And my question is, and I've looked at this, can he do it? Where will he find the money? Well, here's the next couple of slides I want to try and show you where, how hard it will be, I think, to find that money politically. The first thing is, keep in mind that the, the baseline under President Bush's last budget was flat, the base budget. He was assuming that we would be spending some on the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, but he thought the Pentagon's base budget would actually be flat for the rate of inflation. That's the pink line on the far left. The other three lines show three different of President Obama's budget submissions. And I do this for one reason only. The President has claimed that he has cut military spending by $478 billion over the next 10 years. That is the difference between the blue line and the red line, $478 billion. Classic Washington game. When you cut from the baseline, it's savings. When you get less money than you asked for the year before or you expected to get the year before, voila, you have saved the taxpayer's money. Not true. Um, next, I've done two things with, President, with Governor Romney's, <laughs> slip there, Governor Romney's proposal. Um, and that is, uh, he hasn't specified how soon he will hit his 4% of GDP target. And there is some uncertainty as to what the actual GDP level will be. I've made some, I think, reasonable assumptions. I've bounced this against a few others. Two different lines at the top, whether he achieves his 4% target at the end of his first term or the end of his second term. The blue line right there is uh, in between is the uh, uh, Paul Ryan budget. Paul Ryan has uh, proposed to. Uh, to allow uh, defense to grow slightly higher than the rate of inflation. But as you can see, it's well below where Governor Romney is proposing. And the green line at the bottom is sequestration, okay, below where President Obama. So let's just focus on the three most likely scenarios. By my calculation, the difference between uh, Governor Romney's proposal on military spending and the current baseline under President Obama's uh, request from this year is over $2 trillion in additional spending over the next 10 years. $2 trillion. 
And that's assuming that sequestration doesn't happen. If sequestration happens, tack on another $500 billion difference. Sounds like a lot. Here's the thing to keep in mind. I've already pointed out that defense spending has grown by about, has nearly doubled in real dollar terms since the low point in 1998. That means that sequestration, which has been called a goofy meat axe, shooting ourselves in the head, all kinds of things, devastating, lead to another war. I, I actually had a slide in there, all the crazy quotes about sequestration. I can't keep up with them. There are so many. Um, sequestration puts us where we were in 2006, 2007. Not exactly a lean year for the Pentagon, if you all will remember that. Okay? President Obama's budget, under current projections, is higher than the average that President Bush spent on the base budget. Higher. And, and Governor Romney's proposal is, quite literally, off the chart. So far off the chart, as a matter of fact, that I opened the aperture up a little bit, and that other peak back there in 1985-86, that's, that's President Reagan during the height of the Cold War, during the Reagan buildup. Real inflation-adjusted dollars. We are spending at historic highs, and Governor Romney proposes to increase that spending even more. So uh, where should we be going? I'll make a prediction. I think that we're likely to see some modest cuts in real spending and not just the slowing of the rate of the gross or, or a flattening of military spending over the next decade or so. I think we're actually going to see some modest cuts. And therefore, my work and that of my colleagues is really on focusing on we don't want to set an arbitrary budgetary ceiling and then expect the military to just make up the difference, to adapt. And Because we did that in the 1990s, actually. We did cut military spending, and we gave the military more things to do. We shouldn't repeat that mistake. We shouldn't cut the military's budget without also rethinking its roles and mission. The good news is that we can rethink those roles and missions. In fact, I think we should have done this, we could have done this, long before we reached the edge of the fiscal cliff. And again, that's what my and many of my colleagues before my, my predecessor, Ted Galen Carpenter, going back to the late 18, 1980s, were making this case and into the 1990s. Instead of asking the US military to do more with more or the same with less, we should ask them to do less with less and expect other countries to do slightly more. Americans can responsibly reduce military spending and adopt a more restrained foreign policy because our security threats are modest and manageable. You know, if, if our survival was in question, if there were hordes of angry savages at the gates, if there were a modern fascist nation state poised to take control of all of the Eurasian landmass, then I put these things aside and Ronald Reagan said, defense is not a budget issue, you spend what you need. But as I pointed out, not even Governor, not even President Reagan, not even Ronald Reagan spent as much as we're proposing to spend today on defense. And we're spending far more than even he did because we spend not merely to defend the United States and our security, but we use our military to defend others. And if we change course and focus our resources and our attention on our own security, then we can safely spend less. Now, not surprisingly, the mere suggestion here in Washington is unconscionable. People in this town behave as though every problem, no matter how small, no matter how distant, is inevitably going to arrive on our shores. And therefore, we can't rely on other countries to do more or really anything in their own defense uh, or to defend their interests. And therefore, their failure to act becomes our need to act. Um, the Beltway consensus is wrong. The community, the, the, as, as with domestic policy in many cases, the, the, inside the Beltway consensus is wrong. A world with slightly less US military power isn't nearly as frightening as they say it is and more, a more realistic understanding of the limits of our power, uh, particularly our military power, is prudent and wise. We should, just for a moment, remember what it is that makes us a truly exceptional nation. It's not our military power, and I say that as someone who served in the US military, who has friends still serving the in the US military. I understand the sacrifices they make. I honor their courage that of their families, but it's not their work 
that defines us as a nation, or at least it shouldn't. That's not what sets us apart from the rest of the world. We're exceptional because we're prosperous and free. And importantly, we were allowed to become prosperous and free because we were free from the normal concerns about security that dominated the attention, in fact, arguably, were the rationale for states in the first place to defend people from foreign threats. And because we were relatively secure and safe, and still are, we traditionally husbanded our power, focused on building our strength at home, and yes, we used it from time to time on behalf of others or in advance of our security interests, but on rare occasions. We've departed from this tradition in, in our domestic politics. We've seen the, the commitments that we've undertaken, the obligations that we've incurred, uh, or more accurately, that the politicians have incurred for us. These obligations impose a heavier and heavier burden on the U.S. economy and on American taxpayers. Consider, following the collapse of the Soviet Union, the United States accounted for about a third of the world's military spending and about a third of its total economic output. Today, as I've shown, the United States accounts for nearly half of the world's military spending, but less than a quarter of global economic output. And the trend lines are moving in the wrong direction. My case is that we're reaping what we sowed. We have allies with liabilities and few capabilities. And they are growing more dependent upon US power, not more independent, not more empowered to deal with their own problems. Let me close on this point. I think that defense is obviously a core function of government, perhaps the only essential function of government. And it would be a mistake to treat spending on defense as uh, similar or equivalent to spending for farm subsidies or public housing or food stamps. But when we spend on our military, not just for our own defense, but for that of others, you know, think about it. In any other country, we have a Department of Defense and a Department of Homeland Security. In any other country, that would be horribly redundant. Here in the United States, it's, it makes sense. Some people like to say we have a Department of Defense and a Department of Offense. Right? Um, other, I like to say that it's the Department of Homeland Security defends the homeland, and the Department of Defense defends everyone else. Except I can't really say that, because I don't really think the Department of Homeland Security defends us either. So I'm, I'm kind of left with nothing. Um, there are occasions. I want to be very clear on this point. There are occasions when military force is required to eliminate an urgent threat to national security. And we must, therefore, maintain a strong military to deal with such threats. The case today that I'm making is that our capacity for waging war vastly exceeds our need for such capacity. Here's George Washington's idea of a, uh, his vision for the foreign policy for his republic. Separated as we are by a world of water from other nations, if we are wise, we shall surely avoid being drawn into the labyrinth of their politics and involved in their destructive wars. The great rule of conduct for us in regard to foreign nations is in extending our commercial relations to have with them as little political connection as possible. I'm going to hand over the podium to, to Malou because where she is, now she's going to take up this argument that we have moved so far and entangled ourselves in the affairs of other nations so much that the question, how does current US foreign policy compare to George Washington? Well, George Washington wouldn't recognize it as such. So I'll, leave, I'll turn it over to Malou. so much to everyone here. Oh, actually, let me turn this on real quick. Okay. Thank you so much to everyone here. Uh, I know that you all have other obligations, uh, families and friends, and so I really do appreciate you coming to Cato University and hearing what my colleagues and I have to say. And thank you also to Chris for a fantastic presentation and a great segue also to the conference department and the marketing department for putting this all on, and also to Tom Palmer for inviting me here to speak. I'm going to try and, um, I've actually heard this before, that you know, giving speeches and everything, it's better if it's more like a conversation. So uh, just imagine that I'm talking to each of you individually. You know, it's not a lecture, but a, sort of a back and forth. 
To begin our discussion, I want to start by laying out the conventional wisdom in Washington, D.C. What I find fascinating is that many people like to say that politics in Washington have become so divisive and so dysfunctional and so polarized that nothing can possibly get done. Um, I've come here to tell you that at least on foreign policy, that assumption is absolutely wrong. In Washington, there's a strong bipartisan pro-interventionist bias. And it definitely contradicts the numerous polling that we've seen in terms of the American people, many of whom want to begin limiting the number of incursions that we have abroad. The, many of them think the Iraq war was a mistake. And the overwhelming majority of Americans believe that we should leave Afghanistan immediately. So I want to begin that just with the conventional wisdom. And I'll go through some of the, sort of the major points from uh, current and former presidents. Also, then, I'd like to explain sort of why the political science and empirical evidence show that the conventional wisdom in Washington is wrong. And I'll just go through that a little bit and have numerous slides and also go through the case studies, most recently Iraq and Afghanistan. And then finally, I'll wrap up by examining how perpetual war alters the structure of the institutions designed to protect our liberties, regardless of who wins on the battlefield. So to begin, we have President Obama to promote his administration's way forward in Afghanistan. President Obama said last year that, quote, we protect our own freedom and prosperity by extending it to others, which sounds a lot sort of like his domestic policy. <laughs> to quote presidential nominee Mitt Romney, he said recently at the Veterans of Foreign Wars uh, National Convention that, quote, like a watchman in the night, we must remain at our post. In an American century, we secure peace through our strength. In an American century, we lead the free world, and the free world leads the entire world. You know, Tea Party champion Marco Rubio sort of echoed this comment when he said, um, actually at the Brookings Institution in April, that he begins by reminding people that whatever, whatever happens all over the world is our business. That's a direct quote. Here we have President George W. Bush, his 2002 National Military Strategy of the United States, said weeks after the 9-11 attacks that, quote, the United States will use this moment of opportunity to extend the benefits of freedom across the globe. We will actively work to bring the hope of democracy, development, free markets, and free trade to every corner of the world. This was very similar to his father's uh, national security strategy back in 1991, when President George H.W. Bush uh, insisted that America's national security task in the third world was to, quote, foster stability, promote peace, democracy, human rights, rule of law, protect lives and property, help our friends and allies, and those in need of humanitarian aid, unquote. Very expansive list. And again, just to ram home the point that this is bipartisan, uh, last but certainly not least, President Bill Clinton asserted that America's security requires that it help to ensure, quote, a just, enduring, and ever more uh, democratic peace in the world, unquote, and that the three central goals of his administration's 1995 national security of engagement and enlargement were, number one, to sustain our security, which I'm sure most of us here can agree with, to bolster America's economic revitalization, again, we can agree with, and number three, to promote democracy abroad. Now, what I find truly remarkable about the conventional wisdom is that it argues what America ought to do and sort of like what America, not necessarily what America can do. It implies that America must eliminate instability, uncertainty, poverty, insurgencies, threats to allies, and essentially the sort of natural patterns of global politics. What they never ask is what is the likelihood of such a disruption uh, in terms of our access to foreign markets? What is the harm if the access to markets is closed and for how long? how we've dealt with such disruptions in the past, which we have, and are there available alternatives if there are certain threats to access to markets or to uh, our allies, for that matter. I think what is also really remarkable and truly astonishing about the conventional wisdom is that poverty, uncertainty, and instability are everywhere. As Tom Palmer likes to say, poverty is the natural state of mankind. So to eliminate the inevitable patterns of global politics is an intrinsically Sisyphean task. It's an essentially limitless mission that conventional wisdom argues in Washington. Another astonishing part about uh, the conventional wisdom is how it argues for free trade and free markets while simultaneously contradicting free trade and free market principles. It argues not that the United States should withdraw from the world in order to allow for international transactions and for peaceful economic exchange, but that the government should impose trade and impose order in order for free trade to take place. In some respects, this is a very radical, leftist, and some might say Marxist-Leninist interpretation of US foreign policy. It's this pernicious notion that the United States should use aggressive military force and political intervention to secure the flow of raw materials. 
It's a very pernicious argument. I think most importantly, and what I'd like to focus on for the remainder of my talk, is what the conventional wisdom advocates. And that is a very warped perception of American exceptionalism. I truly believe that America is exceptional, not only for its history, but also its values and its principles. But what the conventional wisdom argues is that because of our history and because of our principles and values, we have a special role to play in the world. And we must impose our order and coerce others in the process. We can intervene all over the world because we are exceptional. We have the wisdom, the foresight, the sophisticated weaponry, and the capability to reshape foreign societies. It's a very self-loving mission and the notion that the US government is entitled to meddle and reshape foreign societies. And it almost becomes immoral if we don't use our power for good. Now, what the conventional wisdom does is replace what should be an argument about empirical data and outcomes with wishful thinking and hypothetical threats. What it needs is an honest assessment about the success of military intervention and its consequences for democracy. And I think that's what we can judge right here today. So I just want to pivot and start with one case study, Iraq. Now, despite daily bombings, mass casualty car bombings, and ongoing sectarian violence, virtually nobody pays attention to Iraq anymore, which is very sad. Now, certainly, we were uh, sort of led into war for national security imperatives. But again, we were misled. Uh, later on, we find that the government had deceived many Americans. We were essentially duped. And it essentially drew into a mission or devolved into a mission to spread free market principles and democratic institutions to the Middle East. But over the past year, as we've seen, Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki's government has begun to harass and attempt to silence Iraq's news media and anyone else it considers a critic. The government virtually gave itself unlimited discretion to review the applications of, for the licensing of television satellite trucks, censoring books, and controlling internet cafes. Former Prime Minister Iyad Alawi has said that Iraq, quote, is slipping back into the clutches of a dangerous new one-man rule, which inevitably will lead to full dictatorship. Unquote. Kurdistan President Masoud Barzani has said, quote, Iraq is facing a serious crisis. It's coming towards one-man rule, unquote. Reuters concluded that Maliki's authoritarian behavior evokes memories of, quote, the laws used to muzzle the media under Saddam Hussein, unquote. And of course, we have the Freedom House's Freedom of the World Survey and says that Iraq is today less oppressive compared to Saddam Hussein, but just barely. From a, it moved from a score of seven in political rights, which was the most oppressive, a score of political rights in, of seven in 2003, up to a score of six in 2010, a one-point difference in seven years. Safiya Al-Suhail, a women's rights advocate and an Iraqi parliamentarian, argues that the overthrow of Saddam Hussein and the radicalism that was spawned in its wake also led to a severe deterioration in women's safety. The massive social dislocation led many Iraqis to enroll and become enlisted in armed religious factions, sectarian militias, and religious political parties, many of which engaged in fanaticism and aggression directed at women. Even the practice of honor killings increased and intensified after the US-led invasion. In addition, Americans paid an enormous price in blood and treasure to end up with an Iraq that is under considerable Iranian influence. Now, certainly Saddam was a brutal tyrant, but he was also secular, hostile to Islamists, and a foe of Tehran. Maliki and his various Shiite militias that he relies on for political support is less secular and is partnered with Iran's Shiite regime. And just a quote here. Uh, in June, the Associated Press reported that Iran, quote, helped create, unquote, the Maliki administration in 2010 and is now, quote, calling in favors among its allied factions in Iraq, unquote. The AP also reported that Shiite clerical leader Muqtada al-Sadr had gone to Iran for talks, and that Sadr's mentor, Grand Ayatollah Qasim al-Hiri, issued a fatwa against support for secular leaders in the new Iraqi government. Now, Hawks calling for war with Iran as a result of sort of its expansion throughout the region, this sort of illustrates what uh, Austrian economist Ludwig von Mises calls or describes as the cumulative tendency of government intervention, in the sense that government perceives a problem and it intervenes to solve it. But instead of solving the initial problem, the government intervention creates two or three or four further problems. And we see this with the case with Iraq. The removal of Saddam Hussein as the principal strategic candidate to Iran paved the way for the expansion of Iranian influence across the region. And now we see hawks arguing for a war with Iran, even though the invasion and occupation of Iraq was one of the many uh, sort of uh, triggers and catalysts to the expansion of Iranian influence. And this is, of course, why when we account for the investment we've made in terms of the dead and wounded, 
the time spent and the attention consumed by our leaders, our journalists, and our scholars. Again, polls show overwhelmingly that many Americans believe the Iraq war was a mistake. Now let's look at Afghanistan, another major case, another recent case, post 9-11 case. Now again, we have a, a national security imperative where we went in to target those responsible for 9-11. Um, I myself was a proponent of the intervention, as were my colleagues at the Cato Institute before I got here. Uh, but certainly, you know, what we've seen is mission creep. It's gone beyond targeting those responsible for 9-11 to now nation building. This is certainly mission creep. And in this respect, I think foreign policy is quite similar to domestic policy, where certain uh, bureaucracies begin having sort of bureaucratic inertia, and we see policies go well beyond their original purpose. Now, here are the standard claims made about the war and why we must stay. The first is that gains are fragile and reversible that a drawdown should be based on conditions on the ground, and that any drawdown will undermine our tenuous progress. Now, Chris has argued before in a number of outlets that tactical gains are always fragile, fragile, uh, fragile and reversible in times of war. And to his point, according to the 2011 National Intelligence Estimate, which is the authoritative assessment of the 16 various US intelligence agencies, security gains in Afghanistan are unsustainable about the, the claim that withdrawal should be based on conditions on the ground. Those conditions on the ground give us uh, reason to bring our ongoing uh, involvement in this conflict to an end. India and Pakistan are using Afghanistan as a proxy battleground. We see an increasing number of green on blue attacks. That's Afghan troops turning their guns against American soldiers and NATO soldiers. And we also see, you know, sort of the, uh, with the, uh, con uh, the Commission on Wartime Contracting, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, we've written on this a bit, that uh, the US taxpayer is the second largest funding source for the insurgency behind the opium harvest. And I can go into detail about that in the Q&A, why that's the case. About the claim that withdrawal will undercut progress, it's important to keep in mind what progress was originally supposed to mean. President Obama tripled the number of troops in Afghanistan as part of a broader strategy to protect the Afghan people, which was counterinsurgency, population-centric counterinsurgency, and also to win hearts and minds, to drain popular support for the insurgency. Now, so where is the progress in terms of protecting the Afghan people and winning hearts and minds? According to the UN mission in Afghanistan, 2011 was the fifth straight year in which civilian casualties rose. So we have not seen the progress that the Obama administration claimed that we sought to achieve. The tripling of troops failed to suppress insurgent violence that were directed at the Afghan people. In terms of hearts and minds, uh, recent events have really thrown serious doubts in terms of our ability to do, to do so, with the incidental burning of Qurans, uh, soldiers uh, seen in a video urinating on Taliban corpses, and uh, the unfortunate incident of the army sergeant uh, who was charged with killing 17 Afghan civilians. It's certainly an aberration, but something that has deeply soured the mission. Now, the conventional wisdom in Washington at the time in 2001 uh, was that the United States can bring about gender equality and democracy and human rights into Afghanistan through training and foreign assistance and that the international community can essentially create enduring political, social, and economic institutions in the process. But after the last 10 years, we've seen that the accumulated costs of their, are exceeding $500 billion, and the costs are, at least right now, $2 billion a week. And the Afghan government and security forces remain corrupt, inept, and unable to function on their own. The problem is that we attack the symptoms of Afghanistan's instability not the underlying issues of ethnic, religious, and nationalist differences. That would have required radically changing Afghanistan's priorities and values. It would have required changing and altering how we engage with local communities. And also it would have required rallying and uniting various multi-ethnic communities in Afghanistan who are often more loyal to local as opposed to central authority. You know, when I think about nation building and a lot of our foreign policy these days, I'm reminded, reminded of uh, Hayek's aphorism uh, to plan or organize progress as a contradiction in terms. The best way in terms of, you know, in fact, this was discussed earlier this morning in terms of incentives, creating wealth and progress requires generating local incentives that requires well-defined and legally secure property rights and institutions to facilitate free exchange. But what we see with top-down foreign-imposed development efforts is that it distorts those incentives. That's why we have such rampant corruption in Afghanistan. That's why we see that the insurgent's seventh, uh, second largest funding source, or the first largest, the second largest funding source is the US taxpayer, and the second largest funding source is the opium harvest. These are very perverse incentives that fuel the insurgency. In many respects, we're sort of funding both sides of this conflict inadvertently. Institutions must develop with the attitudes, values, and incentives of those societies in mind. 
And so with that, I'm going to shift over now to also not just beyond the, uh, the post-9-11 wars, but also academic studies that also challenge the foreign policy conventional wisdom. What I find fascinating is how policymakers and pundits often say that you know, democracy can take root anywhere, regardless of ethnic history, poverty, turbulent histories. And in, in many respects, I, I instinctively want to believe that. But academic studies attempting to systematically determine the impact of military intervention on democracy promotion find that the conventional wisdom is patently false. Military intervention is not, an effective, uh, is not very effective at spurring substantial democratic improvement. And also, outcomes depend on a number of economic, political, and social factors within the target state. And this is often why we see failure, mixed results, and pyrrhic victories. And superpower interventions and their consequences for democracy. New York University's William Easterly, Shankar Satyanath, and Daniel Berger find that during the Cold War, both US and Soviet interventions were followed by, quote, significant declines in democracy, unquote. This implies that the adverse consequences of intervention were not based on whether an intervening, an intervening power was democratic or dictatorial. In Forging Democracy at Gunpoint, Kansas State University's Jeffrey Pickering and University of New Mexico's Mark Bassini write that since 1945, military interventions by liberal states, such as Britain, France, the United States, had rarely played a role in democratization. The problem? is that successful interventions such as Germany and Japan, which everyone loves to bring up, their aberrations, the, the number of successful interventions are so small, they found that it was difficult to draw generalizable conclusions. And forced to be free, forced as in foreign imposed regime change, which is pretty clever. Uh, George Washington University's Alexander B. Downs and University of Oklahoma's Jonathan Monton find that states that have their government removed by a democracy gain no significant democratic benefit compared to similar states that do not experience intervention. It's almost like a treatment and control uh, study. These regimes rarely become institutionalized democracies after 10 years and receive no democratic benefit over the ensuing 20 years. They actually also found a selection bias in that uh, intervening powers typically intervene where reform is most difficult and in countries with poor prospects for democratization, which makes sense. And they also found that success depends on a number, a number of uh, favorable factors for democracy in the target state, such as whether the target state is economically developed and ethnically uh, uh, homogenous. In catastrophic success, Downs examines 100 cases of foreign imposed regime change from 1816 to 2008. He finds something that I found actually very interesting. He finds that foreign intervention tends to promote stability when the intervening powers are seeking to restore a previously deposed ruler. But when interveners oust an existing ruler and impose a wholly new government, the likelihood of civil war more than triples. Interventions tend to weaken state power, making fragile governments easier to topple. Interventions create winners and losers, with losers seeking to avenge their grievances. Interventions are, involve foreign meddling and occupation that generates resentment. And of course, again, contrary to the conventional wisdom, foreign imposed regime change is more successful when target states are relatively wealthy and highly homogenous, like Germany and Japan, not Iraq or Afghanistan or the Balkans or Somalia or any other uh, country that we've been intervening in in the last 20 years. In Greed and Grievance and Civil War, Oxford economists Paul Collier and Anke Hoffler write that when the target state is poor, and I find this very interesting, the supply of potential fighters is higher and larger because the opportunity cost of joining a rebel army is low since there's very little income to forego. In foreign imposed regime change, state power, and civil war onset, Emory University's Dan Reiter and Euron Pike examined 42 foreign imposed regime changes since 1920. They found that when interventions damage state infrastructure, they make civil war more likely because those assets help bring and mobilize and facilitate the mobilization of armed goods, armed forces, goods, and services that drain popular support for insurgencies. They also found, as a similar study found earlier, that losers seek to regain their former position, as we saw with the Ba'athist Sunnis in Iraq and the Pashtun-dominated Taliban in Afghanistan. And last but certainly not least, an intervention in democracy New York University's Bruce Bueno de Mesquita and George W. Downs found that since World War II, US interventions led to stable democracies within 10 years less than 3% of the time. Interventions don't lead to stable democracies. What they found is that interveners view institutions instrumentally, and that the target state may have the trappings of democracy for symbolic purposes, but they lack the institutional arrangements essential for party competition and genuine liberal democracy. 
Now, I would say that looking back on all these academic studies, that the failure of our policymakers and pundits to know the types of democracy promotion efforts that succeed and those that fail is perhaps the most damning indictment of their promotion of America as the world's uh, global police officer, world social worker for that matter. In fact, Milton Friedman condemned the foreign policy conventional wisdom in 2005. He said that progress toward his goal of rolling back the size of government was, quote, being greatly threatened, unfortunately, by this notion that the US has a mission to promote democracy around the world, unquote. Friedman also warned that war is a friend of the state because when at war, quote, the government will take powers and do things that it would not ordinarily do, unquote. This brings us uh, to my final point about the conventional wisdom and why foreign policy should matter to all of you. More insidious than war's contribution to suffering and death is how in attempting to run the world, the power that government, official government officials claim in times of war harms the very nature of our constitutional republic. Economic historian Robert Higgs writes in a Crisis in Leviathan that the biggest increases in the size and scope of government power have historically been during times of war. In what he describes as the ratchet effect, once a crisis has passed or has been averted, government rarely relinquishes its newfound powers. And centralization becomes a model for, for peacetime planning bureaucracies. Texas A&M University professor Christopher Lane he argues that the greater the external threat a state faces or believes that it faces, the more autocratic its foreign policy making process becomes and the more centralized its political structures tend to become. External threats often necessitate a powerful governmental apparatus to mobilize resources for national security purposes. And these governments tend to adopt status forms of democracy or even authoritarian structures. We certainly saw this during World War II and during the Cold War and to a lesser extent today. After 9-11, the Bush and Obama administrations ordered the government to spy on American citizens through powers granted by the USA Patriot Act. Government officials can wiretap phones, hack email accounts, pry into business records, and spy on American citizens, all without a warrant and at the government's sole discretion. This is certainly important because in the beginning, right after 9-11, the apparatus of government surveillance was used on foreign people on foreign lands. What we've seen is the gradual importation of government surveillance directed domestically against American citizens on American soil. You know, this, uh, the government's supposed to be transparent and accountable as we've been hearing all week, but when it comes to foreign policy and national security, we find the government hiding behind bureaucracy, secrecy, and inaccessibility. Now, you'll inevitably hear people say, well, if I'm not a terrorist and I'm not doing anything wrong, well, why do I care if the government spies on me? That is a terribly, terribly, terribly misguided view to have, and I'll tell you why. Government, uh, since 9-11 at least, and certainly before, as the Church Commission uh, investigated in the 1970s in the wake of the Watergate scandal, uh, government uh, surveillance has been exploited for reasons having nothing to do with national security. Since 9-11, government authorities have been caught uh, gathering intelligence on Ron Paul supporters in Florida and opponents of natural gas drilling in Pennsylvania. And then recently, a study funded by the Department of Homeland Security described as potential indications of terrorist ideology, Americans who are, quote, suspicious of centralized federal authority, reverent of individual liberty, and those who seek to establish, quote, a decentralized, non-hierarchical system, anarchists. So, so to characterize as terrorism what are legitimate political beliefs, I think, really illustrates the fine line between a government claiming to protect you and a government wanting to control you. Now, of course, questioning government is how the Founding Fathers wanted patriots to act. And to believe otherwise is to really misunderstand the mindset of those who founded this country. As Chris alluded to in his talk, George Washington wrote in his farewell address that military establishments were inauspicious to liberty. But as we've seen over the past 10 years, militarism has become normalized. We've seen the militarization of state and local police, drug enforcement agents, no-knock SWAT raids, police patrolling the metro with assault rifles, the TSA's indiscriminate pat-downs, and invasive full-body imaging. All of this in the name of foreign policy and national security. As we see more crackdowns, more surveillance, more enforcement, and more arbitrary power. I just want to close by talking uh, about why non-intervention and military restraint should be the default position for anyone who wants to minimize the size of government. It means applying the same free market critiques of uh, concentrated power and centralized executive authority to foreign policy, just as we do in domestic policy. I personally believe and strongly believe, and I'm sure many of you also believe, that you know, those who are skeptical of the government's ability to alleviate poverty in the urban inner cities 
should also be not, not uh, place their faith in the power of government to reshape foreign societies and to transform them. So what can be done about all of this? What I want you to do today and going forward is to really challenge the conventional wisdom in Washington. Make the case that America does not have the right or the duty to impose its form of government onto foreign peoples through force or coercion. Make the case for deterring and punishing aggression against the United States, but not for attacking non-complying countries or spreading democracy at gunpoint. Make the case for America setting an example that other countries wish to follow. Make the case for non-coercive forms of global engagement. Endorse cultural exchange, immigration, free trade, and diplomatic engagement with the rest of the world. Make the case for why our history of unsuccessful interventions should matter more than good intentions. Make the case for how endless war gives permanent life to policies that damage our liberties here at home. And most importantly, as Chris alluded to earlier as well, make the case that America is far more secure than any great power in history. As I like to tell people, think about it this way. If Afghanistan is unconquerable, think about America, a fiercely independent country with a love of guns and bounded by two giant oceans. And with that, I'll uh, leave the floor to question and answer. It was really an honor and a privilege to be here today. Thank you so much. <laughs>